Daniel, let's see it. We're good again. United are back, baby. What a team. <laughs> Never doubted them. Not once in the past nine years. I always knew it would end up that. All yeah. is forgiven. All is forgiven. Yeah, sorry for everything we said about the Joel Glazer. He's he's really a lovely man. <laughs> anyway, funny, funny game, wasn't it? Because actually United weren't that good, really. But gutted out a 1-0 win. That's it. It's sort of what you want to see in some ways, isn't it? That it didn't go how they wanted it to. They persevered. They've managed to produce a telling moment of quality. And they hung on pretty well in the end. Yeah, yeah, it was a great goal. I mean, I, I'm assuming I'm going to give Diogo Dallo the benefit of the doubt and say he meant that <laughs> he pass. He wanted to do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, <laughs> you know, I have my suspicions. but uh, and, a, and a fantastic finish from Bruno. He's been spending much of the last sort of year shanking them everywhere. But actually, it was the uh, way he kind of stepped corner. onto it was, was yeah. very nice. The way he would kind of... I mean, it wasn't. I'm going to compare it to a goal that was much, much better that was just scored by Alan St. Maxima in injury time for Newcastle. But the way they were similar were that the kind of the momentum for the strike came because they stepped into it, and it meant that they were then almost able to cushion the ball whilst retaining the power that they needed to score. And obviously, St. Maxima's goal was a better goal, yeah. but it was a similar kind of skill, that ability to take a step forward whilst keeping your eye on the ball and. Applied laces was excellent. Yeah. I mean, it came in one of the few periods that United was sort of in on top in the game. Because much of, mo- most of the second half, it was kind of Southampton running a show, really. And United had to defend well. A different game than the Liverpool game, obviously. But still, United under a bit of pressure. But uh, the goal came when United were on top. And they held out. And again, I guess, Malassia and Martinez and Varane at the back were... Good again, weren't they? I mean, defend, had <laughs> yeah. to defend differently, but actually competent defending for almost all of the game. Where you can't, you're sitting there and you don't really expect them to concede. Yeah. That it felt like Martinez in particular was going to make sure that Southampton didn't score. And that sort of sounds like a bit of a silly thing to say because they did come quite close to scoring on a couple of occasions. And the fact that they didn't wasn't because of Martinez's defending. True. But. There's a level of calmness that United have with Martinez. But that's yeah. not so much. But he has that kind of frantic quality to his defending, which also I feel like it makes strikers feel rushed because they know that he's likely to make a challenge of some sort. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, look, I think all the concerns about Martinez's physicality you can just kind of forget those I mean he's almost over physical isn't he I mean he's always tight and always always on his man Malassia yeah busy all of the time but 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 what happens when he has to mark Chris Wood <laughs> yeah yeah I I do like Gabriel Agbong Lahore's 15 minutes this week where he's just doubling down on his his dumb opinion but that's his that's what he's the thing to do is, on is even if he's right and yeah let's be let's be real how many times do we think Gabby Agbong Lahore has seen him has seen Martinez play. Yeah, well, I'm probably twice, as many times I'd as we say. have. Yeah, yeah. But so deciding that you're then in a position to know how good someone is is just so ludicrous. And even in the, on, in those games where we, United got beat, it wasn't like he was constantly getting towered above at the back post. No. He wasn't getting Trevor Sinclair and Patrice Evra. Yeah, it wasn't like that. And no, there was the one where he saw sort of get caught under the ball and didn't didn't jump for it. But that was that was again not being out jumped. That was nothing to do with him being five yeah, foot nine. Yeah, he, he he did it. Yeah, <laughs> which is not something he seems to do very often. And he's been more or less faultless since then. Yeah, I I, I have no concerns honestly. I mean, look, we'll we'll find out whether he's actually good over the long term. But like, he, he's very very busy actually. I think the thing that if I was a manager coach looking at him, is that he's always active and he's going to give away fouls. But but he hasn't done so far, so maybe that's just nonsense as well. Anyway, it, he's it's, got, it's just plays, nice to see United being competent. He plays with an intensity that hasn't been there. Yeah, Trying to right. do things quickly, trying to do things with purpose, trying to do things with conviction. He's untainted by the disgrace that we've seen over the last few years. <laughs> he's used to playing in a team that wins. He knows what the manager wants from him. And he doesn't fuck about. Yeah. And that's the thing with both Lindelof and Maguire, is they are prone to fucking about. Like they Quite don't, a lot. They don't evince 
Is that the word I mean? I think I mean a bit. <laughs> I I, the, I, the mentality that yeah. you would expect from an elite level centre back. Like they're not always in a rush. They're not they're not proactive. They sort of wait for things to happen usually and then try and see if they can deal with them. And sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. Whereas yep. Martinez is trying to stop things from becoming an issue by dealing with the early doors. And That's right. Harry Maguire was referenced in Duncan Castle's truly magnificent piece in the Sunday Times. Uh, just a absolute work of art. <laughs> this this piece of journalism as uh, one of the reasons why uh, Ronaldo is so disappointed with United. And I have to say it was the only part of the article I was like, yeah, all right, I can get that. <laughs> I don't think it's not difficult to understand why Ronaldo was disappointed with United. But the way he completely absolves himself of all of it is nonsense, obviously. And yeah. The way he thinks that sort of everything is been structured to go against him, it just isn't fair. He's going to cream and cream <laughs> until he's thick. Yeah, it's just it's elite it's levels of so entitlement, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, to see him stamping his feet so fruitlessly and so powerlessly. And yeah, unlucky mate. I know for, for that reason, I I can't quite decide. Uh, whether I'd be happier with him pissing off somewhere else, which is like basically what I'd like, or staying and having to sell for a season, being forced into this terrible position of being paid 25 million netto, as uh, George Mendes might call it. Uh, can we, to, can uh, we read a couple of lines out of this? Yeah, yeah, please do. Please to do. Add insult to injury of suffering, <laughs> suffering the worst league finish of his career. He is not a football team. It's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The club also expected him to accept a 25% pay cut written into his contract for a season without Champions League football. It wasn't his fault United hadn't qualified, reasoned Ronaldo. Why should he be penalised? Because he signed the contract. Like, it's just absolutely nuts. What Ronaldo. we need is a reading of this article by that dude on from the Royal Shakespeare Company who did the Ryan Giggs poem. That's, <laughs> that's what we need. <laughs> Ronaldo is understood to have been unimpressed with Tenach's attempt to shift responsibility to the players and their physical output in London. So what, the players are not responsible for this? The Dutchman, lovely elegant variation there, who'd never resorted to such anti-diluvian disciplinary measures across his five seasons at Ajax, made it known he was now open to selling Ronaldo and hasn't started him since. Some of Tenach's new charges would be happy to see, inverted commas, CR7 depart, letting journalists know that Ronaldo's exit would liberate and allow them to express themselves. Their travails working alongside a footballer who set record after record in their sport by seeking to win every game and every <laughs> title have elicited limited sympathy. The best thing some of these players will do in their entire careers is to be able to say that they played beside Cristiano, noted one of the coach. <laughs> the whole thing is just fucking nuts. A footballer who set record after record in their sport. So fucking what? Yeah. Bobby Charles says some records. Our Frank Di Stefano says some records. <laughs> Are we going to reanimate him and try and buy him and play him for United? It's just... Well, I mean, to be fair, if they could get the clicks, they they probably would, wouldn't they? So, yeah, it, it, just stunning piece of stuff coming out of the pen of Jorge Mendes there. Eternally professional, he is girding himself for one more year at United and to make the best he can of it. <laughs> Deary me. I, I'm so looking forward to Cristiano Ronaldo coming on in the 87th minute as United lose one nil at Ammonia Nicosia. It's going to be, it's going to be a beautiful. <laughs> you do sort of feel that for as long as he's around, there will be the temptation to pick him for a match he shouldn't. Yep. And it costs us points. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, for that reason, it's the, on the, the net balance of uh, being cruel to Cristiano Ronaldo and making him suffer the indignity of a 25% pay cut. By the way, I think just on that point, I think actually they're written into the contracts as bonuses for being in the Champions League, not pay cuts. So just a, <laughs> a minor a minor thing there, but still. Uh, anyway, the indignity of having to play the Europa versus getting him out. I, I'm just about on the fence of getting him yeah, out. Yeah, you can see, but uh, if I knew for sure that he'd just be an unused sub every game and then I would constantly be sending him to warm up. Now, nah, then you're all right, mate. Sit down again. 
that would that would that would give me a lot of what we call nachas where I come from. <laughs> yeah, a great deal of enjoyment, pleasure, and pride. But yeah, he just he does just need to go. But again, the problem is no one wants him. They really don't. I mean, the the stories of him perhaps going back to sporting, going around. Well, Duncan I don't know how they could afford totally him. Totally kiboshed that one. All around him, acknowledge the difficulty of securing a suitable move. Few football clubs now spend big on players beyond their twenties. The coaching fashion is from relentless presses, and a year of it alongside Solskjaer, Rangnick, and Maguire has tarnished <laughs> a stellar reputation. Has it really? Does anyone think he was any less good at his peak because he plays with Harry Maguire now? <laughs> well, that's right. There is a real sense, as opposed to a counterfeit or fake sense, that Ronaldo may be stuck with last August's poor choice. Kidding me. And as for sporting, it says here, a return to his first club has been much discussed in Portugal. That the coach has yet his opposition to a transfer become known to the local media. Already publicly critical of Sporting's decision to sell Mateus Nunez to Ward Wolverhampton Wonders, Ruben Amorim has intimated that he might walk out on this contract where Ronaldo signed. Ronaldo is understood to find the posturing of a coach whose team has just won one of three Liga Portugal matches this season laughable. They should just appoint Ronaldo manager. That would solve all problems. So the, yeah, this particular thing is just the way that that sourcing would have occurred. Someone has said Ronaldo finds this laughable. Like, <laughs> how many people has this gone through? Is Ronaldo actually even involved in this? Or has it been decided that it's something he should think is laughable? Or is he genuinely sitting there laughing? I mean, I like the I like the latter picture. I have. Or to does say. he just consider it laughable? It's not. He's not actually laughing, but he considers that it contains within it the prospect for laughter to be enjoyed as consequence. We we need a meme. We we need uh, in his house of mirrors. Uh, is he in this? Is he still? I mean, I assume he's in a rented house in Manchester. But the other, the house he had in Madrid in that documentary a few years back, where every single wall was a mirror. Uh, absolutely magnificent <laughs> so he could see himself in all sides at all times um yeah we need it we need a we need a, a, a repeat of that documentary and see if he's actually laughing anyway there was a game yesterday united were all right all right just about they still they still have that issue of getting the ball through midfield and they do and and uh, Casemiro is not going to solve that, and it, does, it looks like there's not going to be an option in the market he'll solve, to solve i think that. he'll solve some of it but obviously Madrid were able to control games because he was getting the ball for Kroos and Modric to then yeah. do their stuff. And the thing that's still, that we, we had on Monday night, we didn't really have yesterday, is tempo. And Casemiro can help with the tempo because he's a player who speeds the game up. Yeah. But Casemiro, Eriksson, Bruno isn't that. It's, it's, it's a midfield that will be able to do some good stuff. But it doesn't feel like it's a midfield that's going to properly be able to dictate the pattern of games. Needs... No, I mean, Ericsson looks like he's going to play deep this season, basically. And I'm not sure that's exactly why he was signed, but they haven't got that second central midfielder. So that's the role he's going to play. He's going to be playing at eight with Bruno at 10, I think, for most of the oh, most I mean, of the season. Yeah, I think Bruno's probably going to play a bit deeper as well, because, but... Which should be possible, really, because you've got Ericsson who can move forward. And then, in theory, you're going to get more out of Sancho. Although, I guess it'll be interesting to see what happens with Sancho now that we yeah. appear to have Well, I, pre- I presume Sancho's going to go over to the left and there'll be some competition for for places over there as well. Which there needs to be. He Alanga and Sancho switched for this game. So Sancho was mostly on the left and Alanga on the right. Yeah, I don't I mean, know why. Presu- presumably because they really wanted to make something of Alanga's pace behind Alexander Arnold against Liverpool, which worked. A yeah, lot, you know, for a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah it did. Game. I mean, I think that Sancho just he needs just that little bit of edge that will games still pass him by a little bit. And he was involved in the goal. Like he's still more than capable of being involved in great moments. We've seen mm-hmm. twice this week. But in terms of not just affecting the outcome of games, but in but affecting the actual passage of games. Sure. For United, at least, he's got, he's got some work to do. And I um, was kind of, what I was going to say on the midfield that about controlling the midfield is perhaps as Ten Hag's manner and method is inculcated further in the players, the fullbacks coming into midfield will allow them to control midfield a little bit more. And maybe that's so, particularly if Sancho moves over to the left and with Anthony on the right, you've got two wingers who want to come in field that 
will probably help you control midfield a little bit, but just a right back would make such a difference because it means that yeah. Anthony can come in field and you've got if you have going over that threat. Because yeah. Yeah, with yeah. the money that we've spent on Anthony, we could basically have bought the goalkeeper of our choice yeah. and the right back of our yeah. choice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Or a midfielder and a right back or pick, pick so two of the... So a midfielder, yeah. I'm willing to semi accept the fact that the midfielder and the striker that we want is not like the, to get the right one is not something that we can do at this point in the, in the transfer window. I will, I will, I guess I would accept that. Like he wanted Dion, he wanted Nunez, or whatever it is. Like if, if you said to me, here is the that Anthony money to go and buy a centre forwards, do I actually? I mean, it's not my job to be a scout, but like we'd like to think that we're aware of who the hundred million pound strikers in world football are. Yeah, we, we don't. Who would you go and get? Like, oh, Seaman is a punt. He's someone who looks like a good player. Mm-hmm. Not sure he looks like a brilliant player. And with that sort of money, you're then going to... That's it. Yeah, yeah. So I I don't mind. I, I do worry about Gas getting enough goals, but I understand why we're not getting a striker now. And I understand why we're probably not getting in the field now. We want the deal not happening. And what can you do? Yeah. A right back in particular would just... Feels like it would just enable us to stretch the play so much more and not allow teams just to forget about one side because one of the reasons we've seen so little from Sancho for United is because he's had no help. Yeah, well, it 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 looks like that's not going to happen. Anthony's going to have to put up incredible numbers to justify the fee. I mean, it's clear that United are basically paying a 50% premium for doing this deal so late in the window. It appears to be the price quoted early in the window as well. So, <laughs> that's yeah. funny, that. Well, well, well done, United, well done. I mean, here's... Look, I, I'm, I'm going to opine, even though I've I've hardly seen him play, really. I mean, there, there'll be people in Holland who've seen him a lot more than me. But the prevailing opinion is this is a big fee for this player. I mean, it's it's about 50% of Ajax's annual revenue equivalent to. Uh, and his numbers aren't awesome, really. So he's going to have to do better numbers in a stronger league, in probably a less good team, which seems like a combination that's unlikely. <laughs> I mean, I guess the idea... Is that he gives you it gives you something a little bit different? He does, and he carries the ball really well. I mean, again, uh, you know, not being an expert scout, but it is going to be fun watching him. And yeah. also, we've signed Tenach has signed two players who we didn't really know that well. Yeah, and we can tell already that they're both good. Yeah, so maybe it feels a little bit like he's earned the right to this one. But what I was also thinking was, we still don't really know what actually happened with Timber. Because we know the United wanted him, but if we'd have signed him, then do we not sign Martinez? It's hard to tell, isn't it? Because then I was thinking, gosh, Timber must be the player. Because we've seen that we went for him before Martinez. Seemed like it, although he plays a lot on the right. So, I mean, it's it's not certain that what he was going to be bought for is to play through the centre, <laughs> right? So... Hard, hard to know. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I get unless there's some madness going to happen in the next four or five days. Uh, it seems like that's the window done, and this is the squad for the season. And it's a competent squad, and I think we know what Ten Hag wants to play. He's not going to be able to play the exact system he wants with the players he's got. He won't be able to control the game quite in that way. But he seems like he's a pragmatic coach as well. I mean, if you just looking at that Liverpool game, this is not a this is not what Van Gaal would have done, which is like, you play my system in every game, doesn't matter what the you know, situation is. That was United putting men behind the ball and trying to break. And, and so that just looks like a coach who's going to play a system for the for the moment. And maybe he'll have to compromise on some of his his ideals so in yeah, order to get United fine. good. I mean, what, what I'm liking about him is also like when he talks to the press, he seems to speak with quite a lot of clarity. Yeah. And... He's not bothered. He's he's very abbreviated, isn't he? So. Yeah, yeah. Like he doesn't. He's not. But the stuff that he says, like in, in, in the press conference before the game, it felt like almost everything he said was bang on. Where he's talking about the quality of players that United want, like they're not wasting money on players. They're going to make sure they get the right players. Refusing to answer what's his name Cotterill's question was also a nice touch. Yeah, and the kind of the only part, like one of the parts of the Fergie tribute act that actually it might have done Ole 
some good to invoke was that kind of that kind of toughness rather than trying to be everyone's buddy. Mm-hmm. Tenoch clearly isn't trying to do that, and it feels like he's got a good idea of what he's trying to achieve, and he un- has a good understanding of the players. And again, at half time, seemed like he made some decent tactical changes that enabled United to get on the ball a bit more in the second half by kind of pulling Southampton's defenders around a little bit more and kind of players coming deep and other players coming behind them to fill in the gaps. And I mean, they might, the players might have worked it out for themselves, but seems fairly unlikely. Yeah, and the the substitutes just just about worked. You, you brought Ronaldo on for, was it Sancho? Came sure. on. No, that did not. That one wasn't sure. I'm why not sure about that. that one, but and then took Ericsson off again. It was, I guess there's question marks about Ericsson's fitness. Can he? I mean, he, I can't remember. That was really late in the game, wasn't it? So maybe that was just like seeing out the last five minutes of the game or something like that. So I mean, the, the subs are okay. There was one great moment where they had the ball, and I think I think it was Marcus Rashford was going through the middle. It was like a straight through ball was required, and and Rashford would have been through one on one, and Renato poked it out wide, and I was like, what? What, what are you doing? And then ran, <laughs> ran through the middle himself. So I think we know what he was trying to go for there. Classic, classic Ronaldo. Anyway, it's it's another three points needed. The needed it, needed it. The crisis is over, and we can wait till what is it next? Leicester, then Arsenal, isn't it? Less, I think. Yeah. So Leicester on I, Thursday night. Yeah, I mean that might be the one. I think maybe we might see a bit of Maguire for that one. Oof. Just Oof. To, to avoid Varane Thursday and Sunday. That's right, yeah. I mean, yes, he, he. we haven't seen Varane play that many back-to-back games for United. He's always getting injured, isn't he? So but I mean, what if, Ten he, if he can't saying, handle that load, then yeah, maybe we will see Harry. What Ten Hag was saying was that he, he, they built him up slowly in pre-season for that reason. So if that's what's going on, then fair enough. And I hope that we... I hope, I hope that we do get to see Varane, but also we do we do have to handle them carefully because otherwise we're making do. Yeah, Leicester aren't in a good spot really at the moment. They obviously have done no business over the summer. It looks like they're selling Wesley Fofana to Chelsea for huge money. I mean, he's a nice player. He he stopped defending, which is really kind of interesting. Look at Fofana's numbers after he broke his leg. He just he didn't defend anymore. He just didn't do anything. <laughs> like all his all yeah like the pressures the tackles the intercept everything dropped everything so it's a big risk by Chelsea I guess they need the player but uh, yeah Leicester Leicester in some trouble look like they're kind of treading water as a club Brendan Rodgers yeah. is he long for this world well he's probably yeah, a few look, years yeah, for the world yeah. but long for, Will long he for get the Premier League I'm not sure Stephen? oh that's a good question that oh it's coming soon though the Gerard sacking is coming soon and I think we should all enjoy the moment. I mean, yeah, he sort of, I mean, I know that he, he sort of did, not, not that he did well to last out the summer, but to me, if I'm a Villa fan or a Villa chairman, I'm thinking, you don't look much cop to me. So this is already felt like it feels, felt, felt like a last warning situation because Sven already spent some money, like they, they looked after him with getting him the players that he wants and other than trying hard, there's no massive sense in what he expects from them. No, and they're, they're a club under the new ownership with ambition. Yeah, they want they're spending money. They wanna they wanna push for the upper parts of the Premier League. And whether they, that's really their rightful place, Villa or not, I don't know. But they, that's what they want. And and they got the big name in, the big I am in Steven Gerrard in to do the job and they've got a terrible record under him. They lose 50% of their games and that uh, doesn't <laughs> seem to match the ambition of their owners. So uh, Leicester, on the other hand, I mean, it's they're, they're, they're not in a great spot. What did they get? What was this weekend's? They drew this weekend. They, well, they haven't, they no, haven't they lost to Chelsea. Yeah, yeah, they lost. They haven't bought anyone. They haven't bought anyone and they're selling one of the better players. They're selling for Farner. Tiedemann yeah. still might leave. Yeah, he's in the last year of his contract. I mean, United could take a punt on him. I'm not sure he's the answer. But, I, uh, I mean, he, he's not, he's not massively distant from the answer in terms of what he does. But he's the type of player. Yeah, exactly. He's good but is he quite yeah. good enough? Yeah, yeah. He's someone that is better, might be better than what there is, but probably isn't as good as where you want to get to, and that makes him someone I would prefer not to sign. 
Yeah, I agree. Generally speaking, I think United go for the best player they can in the uh, in that position, and and that would be a compromise. Um, anyway, yeah, Leicester Leicester spent most of the game with an extra man because what's his name? Conor Gallagher got himself sent off with a couple of dumb tackles. So it feels like he might have to leave. Conor Gallagher, yeah, to get enough games. Yeah, just because also they've signed uh, Carney Chuck mates. Uh, yeah, on like a. 75 year contract or something yep. so it's hard to see what Gallagher's future is because he's someone who you want barging into the box and doesn't look like that's what Chelsea's need is it's not how they play I mean he looks like he looks like a Lampard type player doesn't he making those third man runs scoring goals rather than a controller in midfield so anyway is he yeah. a Tory? is he a Tory? Tony Gallagher? <laughs> I, I feel, yeah, I, I feel like every time someone compares someone to Frank Lampard, that is what I find <laughs> myself saying. I wonder whether Lampard's long for this world as well. I mean, they got a draw against Brentford, Everton, but they're, they're pretty I mean, dreadful, I guess aren't they? The, 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 the suits at Everton will know that he's in a slightly invidious position. The, the club is a mess and it needs a lot of work doing to it. And he's obviously not the man to do it, don't get me wrong, he's not. But for them to have decided that he is probably would take something quite significant for him for them to now decide that he isn't because yeah as i said like he's not been given loads to work with so they can pretend that he might be the answer for quite a little bit longer i would say i think we can enjoy this one for quite a while longer yeah leicester bottom of the table didn't realize it was that great draw against brentford lost to arsenal Lost to Southampton. They won on penalties, was it, against Stockport in the in the League Cup? Good stuff there. Uh, and then obviously lost to lost to Chelsea yesterday. After us, they've got Brighton, who obviously got a good win against Leeds at the weekend. Uh, so not looking not looking awesome for Leicester at the moment. I wonder I wonder when Brent Brenton might just quit. Uh, I mean, he that would probably cost him a few squid. And I wonder, yeah, like those teeth. Those two don't pay for themselves. Um, I don't. I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised. Um, I'd, yeah, it would require for him to decide that he couldn't take them any further or to think, well, because Leicester was previously a good job. Yeah. Well, they were they were the sort of archetype of a well-run club that... Uh, that was always, did, yeah, always did, the phrase, did, wasn't it? Did good business in the transfer market. Their scouting system seemed to work. They uncovered players for a decent fee and then sold a big one every year in order to, to make the books work. Spent it's all the money on this training ground they? where they've got masseuses and, you know, <laughs> yeah. mindfulness and crap, rooms crap and new got a nice new stadium and, yep. And, yeah, uh, they've sort of been overtaken in that aspect by, uh, by Brighton. Yeah. You now have the young progressive manager here in the crap stadium, like the crap plastic stadium and, yeah. Uh, and the uh, data-led scouting and all of that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what what do you reckon is going on at United scouting department then? Because they spent an awful lot of money getting a big team in, and this was to modernise United's recruitment. And basically, they've gone, yeah, we'll buy whatever Ten Hag wants this summer for whatever money it's going to cost. I guess the stat that they probably weren't ready. Yeah. Say right because the the, the the work with the manager. So what he needed hadn't been conveyed to them because he probably didn't know himself yet. And then I guess him saying, "Get me a right back," and then returning with then they return with they scout a Brazilian right backs and then return with a couple from the Premier League or whatever. That hasn't that hasn't been the time for that to happen yet. So I think we can. It is easy to be scathing about the United scouting department, but. They would say that if it is crap, we don't yet know because they probably, the restructure hasn't had time to take effect. And I'm sure that the plan from, from now on is that the scouting department will constantly be looking for players who fit in with a particular way of playing. The idea will be that any manager who comes in after Ten Hag will play a similar kind of football so it won't be a matter of there being players he wants to get rid of or players that the recruitment department come up with if he thinks, I don't want that player, because the style will be the same, so the needs of the manager will be roughly the same too. That would be the plan, wouldn't it? It's always hard to think United have some kind of long-term strategy and plan here. Anyway, you're probably right about the Varane switch from Maguire. That seems, that seems like 
that that managing him for Arsenal on the Sunday makes makes a lot of sense. And then I, when, of the other changes, maybe we'll see Casemiro start. I mean, he got a he got a few minutes. I think we probably will. We might see Fred as well for Ericsson, something like that. It yeah. depends probably what team Tenach wants to play for Leicester. But I, I for, for Arsenal, sorry. But I would I think maybe a couple of those players we won't who who will, who will play against Arsenal we won't see. So it'd be maybe like a midfield of Casemiro, Bruno, Fred, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bruno plays every game, whatever, and then burns out at the end of the season. So we'll, we'll <laughs> see. But I don't think they'll manage him for the Leicester game, not this early in the season. But yeah, Fred Fred could come in. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to understand quite where Fred fits in a Ten Hag system. I mean, he's not. he's tried him in a slightly deeper position obviously doesn't and is he going to be the number eight or is he going to be Ericsson's deputy at eight maybe something like that something yeah. like that yeah not exactly the controller is he but he he will be someone I, like because the thing is if you don't play him in a game like Liverpool at home where your whole game plan is about recovering the ball high up the pitch that's basically what Fred does quite well if your whole game plan is arranged around that and you still don't pick Fred then, yeah, he probably isn't playing that much football this season. Yeah. All right, that's Leicester. And then final few days of the window. I mean, I wonder whether we might see some exits as well. I mean, they still haven't found anywhere for uh, for Phil Jones to go. <laughs> I mean, he needs something. He's not obviously not going to play at all. Yeah, find a door. He just needs to find a door, <laughs> yeah. Bruno left. Not Bruno. Baye left. So that's one done. Brandon Williams probably needs to find... I mean, he obviously got injured well, he, pre-season. It depends, because if uh, Wan-Bissaka goes, he's... Deputy right back. Well, that's true. Is Wan Bazaka going to go? I'm sure they'd like him to, but there has to be a team that are willing to pay whatever it's going to cost. Because... Yeah, well, it's most likely in that case alone, isn't it? And then a couple of youngsters, Palestri and Ahmad, they're, they're clearly not going to play um, much this season. So they got to be one of the most baffling signings any football club has ever made. Well, actually, United's famous scouting department said to spunk 40 million euros on that kid. Well, yeah, I mean, I know it's 40 plus adults, but when you think 20, about 20, we, 20 plus 20 or something like that. What we could have so, done yeah. with that money. I know. Yeah, a little bit bonkers. So, yeah, I, maybe some exits. I, I, I don't imagine there'll be any more incomings beyond, well, beyond Dubravka. Anthony. Dubravka. Dubravka, Jesus. Yeah, a second keeper, yeah. Another mad one. How, how is the Henderson doing this weekend? Uh, we're, we're recording Not as Forrest for the goal. Forrest are for losing goal. at Spurs as we record. So. Um, so Harry Kane scored not his typical goal, but it wasn't an untypical Harry Kane goal in that he sort of put it away from with an early an early hit from twenty yards or so. But, and I would say that of all the strikers I've seen. I can't think of many that are better than him from sort of 15 to 22 yards. Well, he doesn't put his foot through it. He just gets a shot off quickly enough so that the goalkeeper can't move. And it was sort of one where the direction was good. It went to the corner. It kind of loped and bobbled a bit so that you kind of feel like a serious keeper would have found a way of saving it. But it was, it was a kind of, it was a pretty accurate strike. But yeah. All right. Well, guess that's, guess that's it for this week. We've got less to say about it when United actually win. <laughs> so we can't bitch and moan, which has been the standard tone for the pod for the last however many years. Um, it's, it's it's a strange feeling, isn't it? This United team might actually be competent. So, it's Just even the way that they were able to bring Casemiro on to see it out. Yeah. And he really did assert he got, himself. He got stuck in straight away, yeah, which was good to see, which I'm sure he will be doing this season. Hey, well, yeah, and he has that knack of getting away with that. Yeah, look, if there's a bit of spite to this United side now, Casemiro's there and the butcher, Martinez, is at the back. Great. We haven't seen that for a long time. So powder puff, this group of wasters. Normally, if they, they've got a few people who want to get stuck in, hopefully that'll encourage a few of the others to get stuck in as well and understand what it's like to win football matches. So it seems to have lost that habit, but maybe we're getting back. Okay, for the interview this week, I'm talking to Stuart James Quigley. Do you always go by the three names there or...? 
Stuart Fang. It is something I've always used. I don't Maybe there is something to do with the fact that like the middle name sound makes it all sound a little bit more regal. But for whatever reason, that's <laughs> what I've always used. It's not as if as well. My second name is that sort of common as well. So I could probably get away with just the two, but I've always used it through. All righty. Well, Stuart has written a book called The Cornerstone Collection, which is uh, timed nicely for the 30th anniversary of the Premier League. Sort of telling the story of the Premier League through 45 players. And yes, I guess, uh, 45 I guess it, players. Yeah, go on. And also, no, no, yeah, it's 45 players and every club that's ever played in the Premier yeah. League. So the, the, the scope is as large as it can be, even though it's... Well, when I originally started, I had a spreadsheet of about, I think, a thousand different players. And to narrow that down to just 45. Some are easier than others. Some clubs are really easy to narrow down who you want to talk about. But it's the ones that aren't as... When you've got as vast a selection as like Manchester United, all the players that have played for them, it's really more of a case of why you're picking those players. Yeah. Well, we'll get on to United in a bit. I I want to start with the the sort of premise, really. How how did you come out of that premise and why did you want to write the book? Well, as all good ideas are created, it was born of a night of a few adult beverages uh-huh. and and myself and a few friends. Have you seen the film Memento? Yeah. Yeah. We After a few drinks, we came up with this idea for a, a podcast and all it was was Memento. It was the Premier League backwards. Right. Instead of going from game number one to game number 38, we'd start at 38, predict the Premier League. When you get towards the middle, you're reacting to the games in real time. And then when you get to the end, you're going, which games in like week one and week two could tell us anything, if anything can be taught in those first two games? Did that for a couple of seasons. And then after a while, it's like, how can we how can we continue to do this? I like this idea. And then the idea was telling the story through the players. And could we tell the players' careers backwards? But what players would you pick in... And then very quickly it became a case of like, I don't want to do the, the usual, like the 50 best players or the 45 best players, because those stories have been told over and over again. Right. And so it became a case of like, let's make it really hard for ourselves and pick clubs that people don't even remember were in the Premier League and let's go from there. And it was a really good sort of process doing all that. And, and I pitched the book last year and pitched publishing just, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. from there it was like, yeah, we'll, 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 it was a glorious process at times too, because obviously there are some clubs that, or a club at least, and some players that weren't in the podcast that are in the book. Right. Yes. Okay. So how do you, how do you go about picking? I don't know a player from Barnsley who had how many how many seasons did they have at the Premier one. League? One. One. Right. Yes. Well, the, this is the beauty of this, and what I mentioned earlier, which is that if they've only had one season. The scope is actually quite narrow. Okay. And you're looking at players where there are some clubs that you can't really divulge in one direction or another because they're in there for one season and they only have one really famous player. Other clubs it become even harder where they're in the clubs when they're in the Premier League for a couple of years, but they don't really have loads of players that you could pick from. Bournemouth were a good example of right. that in that they've been in the Premier League for a few years, but like who are you picking from Bournemouth that and if you're picking a, a chapter or if you're isolating a chapter or a story, when we did the podcast, it's like, can we do an hour and a half or, or however long we do about these players? Is their story wide enough? Is their story worth telling? And what you end up, you end up making compromises. Barnes is a really easy one to check off the list because they had Janaga Fjortov, who also played for Swindon. Right. And then you've done Barnsley and Swindon straight away. Nice. And so some of them, it's a bit like easier than others. And it's the ones where you've got loads of players to choose from. Tottenham and West Ham were much harder than the likes of Bournemouth. And, and Huddersfield got a raw end of the deal, I'd like to point out. Derby got a raw end of the deal, I'd like to point out. Because with Derby, it was the 13-point, 11-point season. It was Robbie uh-huh. Savage. It was, And that's how they get mentioned. And Huddersfield, for all the players that they over the course of their couple of seasons in the Premier League, it was Jason Punchin, who realistically has nothing to do with their story. Mm-hmm. But what he does illustrate is what happens when it all goes wrong. And he okay. arrives just at the point where it all went wrong. Yeah, there's some spectacular failures in the Premier League. The 11-point season, mm. I, I'm not sure anyone will ever better that. Can't be, it can't be beaten. So to go at 11 points... I think if you win one game, it throws the points per game out of whack. Yeah, very true. Well, we'll see Derby ever make it back. They're still in existence, <laughs> which was in doubt for yes, that's, much yeah. of much of the past year or so. So, I mean, do you have do you have a favourite player or a favourite game or a favourite moment from the last thirty years or so? 
I think, especially in terms of the book, I always gravitate towards Matt Holland. Okay. And it's purely because I loved that Charlton team from Alan Kirbishley built a side that was like mid-table perfection. They could give anyone a game. They had a spattering of quality and very few real star players. But in that sort of one and a half seasons where they threatened to to burst through the, the, the ranks and become a, like a European contender. Scott Parker and Matt Holland, I think, played together for about a year, maybe slightly more, maybe slightly less. But they beat Chelsea 4-2 on Boxing Day. And I remember watching that game as a youngster and it was an absolute annihilation. Charlton were amazing. Six days later, Chelsea by Scott Parker. And I, I would argue that to the detriment of his career, he, he yeah, won sure. loads, yeah. he, he did whatever, but... That game, what I saw from Charlton, it was like it was the the epitome of this is the ceiling. You're never going to break through it, and and obviously Chelsea and other clubs have done it before, and other clubs will continue to do it. But it was it was a distillation of a lot of different things, and I always think that like Matt Holland as well played over a hundred games for Bournemouth, I think it was played over 100 games for Ipswich, played over 100 games for Charlton, captained all three. That famous interview that Harry Redknapp gave where some West Ham fan accused him of just putting Frank Lampard in the team and when he said Frank Lampard's going to be this, when he basically predicted Frank Lampard's career at the age of 16, Matt Holland was also sort of pointed at at that time and and he just left to get game time and and those kind of stories of players making their own paths and and forging their way and, and becoming sort of indelibly linked with a team that's not necessarily as fashionable as, as those at the top. Sure. And, and that's what I wanted to tell those stories as well. Okay. Yeah, the the big fish, little pond, little fish in the mm. big pond story is, is common in the Premier League, isn't it? And, uh, or maybe less common than it used to be because if you're a good player, you gravitate towards the top now because the money's so so yeah. big. It's hard to turn it down. There's, a, there's a, been a good interview this week in which uh, I think the sporting director at Real Madrid was complaining that the Premier League is now hoovering up all of the players <laughs> and no one else can compete and financially that's true of course so the next thir- well there you go next 30 years of the Premier League will it still exist <laughs> question one post Super League and all of that and and what does it look like in the future will you be able to tell the story of the next 30 years of the Premier League there was a point when the Super League was kicking off where I did wonder whether this was going to be not just the first 30 years of the Premier League this is going to be it sort of yeah. thing and obviously a great example here is when I mentioned Oldham before I, I, I this idea of Gunnar Haller play for Oldham fantastic stalwart of his time for mm-hmm. one of the first foreign players I should say foreign I mean not British or Irish 13 yep. players on the opening day and right. you go from that to this and yes. it, it, everything just uh, one of the things that I find fascinating as well is that the further back you go, and the book does go back further than 1992, 93. It's just a right. really nice, easy line to draw. Yes, because um, you the tell the, you go, the story of the players from from their sort of beginning of their career. And, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Well, and also as well, the like, stuff I didn't know about the fact that like Swindon, they had their one season in the Premier League. They were relegated with conceding 100 goals it was 42 right. games at the time so obviously that's it's going to be very unlikely that that record is, is going to get close to True. but that they were promoted a couple of years before and were denied promotion because of irregularities right had to yes. admit to something of that. like 30 of 36 and the, they were immediate they were relegated again from what would be now the championship to league one they appealed that and managed to sort of stay in what is now the championship and and come through and basically the more you scratch under the surface, the more there is everywhere across the board. And I wouldn't say this is a definitive list. I would just say this is a list. Sure. Yes, I, I mean, imagine if anyone was to come up with 45 players to tell the Premier League story, it'd be, it'd be they look very different, right? Mm, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. everyone's got their personal favourite stories. Yeah, actually, oh, the early 90s were probably when I went to the most football <laughs> in my football watching career, if that's a thing. Just because <laughs> I had the time teenager yeah. able to get on a bus go around the country around europe and stuff like that so i have fond memories of the early 90s but during lockdown we we actually because there was no football on first mm. part of lockdown we did a retrospective on a bunch of games and just did a game a week and looked at old games and it's amazing the difference in the football from today even to the early 90s football looks different mm. than now one of the things that i've discovered i, I thought ha- I had this theory anyway. It's not so much a theory, it's just when you're watching games. The thing that fascinates me is when you watch... There's this clip of Ronaldo, original Brazilian Ronaldo, that right. appears every now and then on Twitter. 
and he's playing in a UEFA Cup game in 1998, and it looks like it's filmed a million years ago. Right. The pitch is bad, the TV cameras, the quality of that is bad. And I feel like the first 10 years of the Premier League are an era onto itself, and then everything speeds up so rapidly. Between 1999 and 2004, the game just accelerates at a level that I can't really fathom, to be honest. And since then, it's only ever moved ever quicker. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's quick, but also technically much better mm. now. I mean, I, I don't know whether football's better for all the changes, honestly. The money and the glamour and the, the globalisation of it and the fact that it's so much so much of football is about business now and the fact that we talk mm. about net spend on podcasts and I have to talk yes. about amortisation and EBITDAR and United's cash flow and all of that. I don't think it's better for that, <laughs> but, uh, the, but, the, the but it's different. The game itself... Yeah, the quality the, it, of the game. Yeah, 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 that's what I mean. And yeah. and the fact that we as fans of whatever clubs you support up and down the 92, I remember very sort of early on just thinking, oh, I'm a fan of a football team. I watch that football team. That's it. And then when you very quickly have to go to like, and also as well, like the whole buying players, selling players, it was just a joy to watch. Now you have to just go, oh, well, you have to do the maths of it. Yeah. And it makes it very robotic and football is not robotic football is emotional and, and full of uh, at least what well, i believe anyway not necessarily ones and zeros and that's when you get down into the roots of then then you can sort of it sort of dullify it it, it it dulls the whole thing yeah well no I, I agree i mean even this week united bought casemiro from real madrid and five european cups mm -hmm. a great player should be very excited about it, but I couldn't help but go, hmm, hang on a minute, 70 million euros, 30-year-old, 300 grand a week. This doesn't add up financially. And why should, as a fan, I care about that? But unfortunately, yeah. it's so much of a business now that it's it's uh, you start thinking, well, my team's going to be affected by this down the line because <laughs> of all the money. Anyway, I, I, I wanted to get on to some of the United players you, you talk about here because it's an interesting interesting group. So four from United, Wayne Rooney, Edward van der Sar, Paul Ince, Ashley Young. Of course, they all played for a number of Premier League clubs. Mm through their career but all sort of indelibly linked with United as well and I mean I guess you can't tell the story of the Premier League without telling the story of Wayne Rooney and that goal on his debut for Everton I think it was his debut or, yes. or yeah so yeah I think he played maybe a game or two before it might have been his first start it might not right. have been, but everyone knows the goal you mean yeah turns on his right foot puts in the top corner past David Seaman mm -hmm. the Arsenal keeper but he, he is he's the story of the Premier League in many ways isn't he Wayne Rooney you know Coming, coming to four. Well, when, when, when was it? Like two thousand. When was that? Two thousand three. Three. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Wayne Rooney is a fascinating case study in any number of ways because I, I mentioned about it's important which players you pick and for why. And there's, if you were to say there's one flaw in this book in terms of trying to cover everything, mm -hmm. there isn't a real solid connection with the 1999 Manchester United trouble. Everything else, I think, is in sure. there. But the problem with that is that there are so many players within that Manchester United side that the story is the same. Or you right. can't connect it loosely to other things. Or it's been told over and over again so no one else needs to hear it. Rooney's story, on paper, should also fit into that category. But fortunately, it doesn't. And I, I was intrigued by the reasons as to why England's all-time top goal yeah. scorer... Manchester United's all-time top goal scorer is not held in the same regard as so many other players. It's interesting that because I think for the for the last three or four years of his time at United, we spent a lot of time moaning about him on this podcast because <laughs> physically he had degraded so much that it affected his performances. So in a, in a sense, there was always the the kind of the passion and desire in the first season that Moyes was at United, a disaster of a season where everything went wrong and it's still David Moyes' fault to this day. It's not, but it's partly. He was United's best player that season and it wasn't really for quality anymore, but just for effort and desire. And he never lost that, but he lost the physical side of his game quite early on. And he, he's, he could still be playing now. Ronaldo's playing now. He's older than him as well, which is, which is fascinating. Yeah. I think when we did the podcast about Wayne Rooney and he opened the series as well as opened the book at the time so you're thinking about three years ago he played somewhere about 10,000 more minutes than James Milner right and so that to me always like was a point of 
these players, when they come through so young, how are they utilised and how are they leaned upon in such a way? And also as well, I, I think that with it, when it comes to Rooney, the the sort of the brush that he was tarred with was that Everton goal was his peak, but it should never have been his peak. That should have been the baseline. It was always what can we get more? And I also think fundamentally, when you consider what he actually won for Manchester United, it was never that that was the issue. It was always the fact that he would never drag England through whatever they were going through. And that's unfair, really. I can always pin it back to those comments he made in South Africa in 2010, when he pointed to the camera and said, the fans, oh, the Nice to see the fans booing you words to that effect or paraphrasing. And I agreed with him then and I agree with him now. And it became such a, a story of, and you see it so often, of like, he should not be held up for England's shortcomings, but that became his reputation. Yeah, interesting. Edward Van der Sar, who, of course, you look back on his career, Champions League winner with Ajax, Juventus, for some reason, didn't work out for him. And then he went to mm. Fulham. Yeah. And he's obviously far too good to be at Fulham, <laughs> far, <laughs> far too good, but he did. Uh, and he he, uh, he could have gone to United in that summer. Ferguson came out with this not that long ago and, and he'd, uh, a man of his word, he'd shook hands on going to Fulham and so, so started his career in the Premier League at Fulham. And fundamentally as well, this is what I said to you about connective tissue. That's why he's in the book for Fulham, because he... Not completely and not on his own, legitimised them as a Premier League club, but they'd been this club that had a lot of money coming up from League One into the Championship and then into the Premier League. They seemed destined for the Premier League from for quite a while, given the amount of money they had at the time and the way they were sort of spending just in that summer, Steve Marley, Steve Marbronk, Jean Tigner with the manager. It was a completely fresh approach and, and like a, an interesting period in the Premier League history because you had the first 10 years where just the same old faces and Fulham were part of this sort of, oh, they're new. Yeah. And Van der Sar legitimised them from the point of they're not just new, like, flavour of the month. They're actually legitimate in terms of, like, a football team. He came in, he did what he does, stayed the length of his contract, established Fulham as part of everything else that's going on there in the Premier League and then moved on to Manchester United and Old Trafford at a point where Alex Ferguson was sort of tinkering with the 1% and he knew that with that particular 1% that he could build a, a, a side that would challenge at the very top of Europe. Yes. I mean, United lost Schmeichel in 99, which you mentioned in your, your piece on van der Sar and... And and then from '99 to when Van der Sar joined United, it was this period, horrible period from a goalkeeping point of view. <laughs> Roy Carroll was, and Tim Howard and Massimo Taibbi and yeah. Barthez and yeah, none of them really this, succeeded. It was funny because there were, and from my own perspective, I can fully much attach myself to this. Obviously, I'll mention at some point who I support, but I'm not a Manchester United fan. But this was latched upon with great glee from everyone that wasn't a Manchester United because it felt like between Schmeichel and at that point that, oh, Fergie's got a weakness with goalies. He can't get another goalie. This is his one Achilles heel. And then as soon as Van der Sar comes in, it's like, well, he's fixed that then. Yeah. You you talk about Paul Lintz, who has an interesting reputation with Manchester United fans. I mean, so obviously, obviously a great player and great player for United and after coming from West Ham, Mm-hmm. And really part of that group, that that first group that took United yeah. to the title. And I, th- I think he joined the season before, didn't he, if I remember yeah. correctly. And really influential player. And then sold in the summer of 95 uh, alongside Mark Hughes and Andre Kanchelskis, was it? Anyway, Ferguson broke that team apart in order to incorporate the class of 92 and and all those players but so sometimes Paul Ince and how good he was is forgotten in all of that but he really was a very good player and and that early 90s midfield of Hughes uh, sorry Keane and Ince as Mm. hard as it gets basically well he's said himself and I know Paul Ince is never one for talking himself down but he's basically said that he is the class of 92 and I can kind of see that point because if you don't have that initial success, you don't have the room to integrate. I, they would have come through regardless, but I don't think it's as sort of seamless if you are... We know it now. It's the same as in 1992 as it is today. It's easier to bring kids into the side when you are... or have established some traditions of winning. And yeah. 
the first couple of years with Paul Inter and then Paul Inter and Roy Keane, the bedrock's laid in and then you can, with the talent that's coming through, it Ferguson just goes all in on it. But yeah, it's, it's a part of that sort of double-edged sword of the game against West Ham where Blackburn won the league and the FA Cup final. I think if one of those had got through, he might not have been sold, but he was basically just sort of, okay, yeah, no, I'm going to change direction now. And um, obviously there's all sorts of things and, and what we said about between Paul Ince and, and Alex Ferguson. Yeah. And the interesting thing that I found was when for Paul Ince manager came back as a manager of Blackburn, and basically all the interviews around that are around burying the hatchet and there's no real grudge there so much. And I actually think, and this is said in the book, that for Ferguson to isolate him and to say the things that he said is actually a big compliment because if he was nothing, if he was a nobody, he wouldn't have said anything. True. I mean, Ferguson's not one to accept challenge to his authority and I think there was some mm. of that as well. And uh, I mean, we've seen that over and over again with Ferguson. Well, that, yeah, that, that happened at Paul Ince. The time he came back into England, he was basically kicked out of Anfield for, for very similar things. Yes. Yeah, he uh, celebrated a goal for Liverpool with such gusto that I don't think many United fans will uh, forget or forgive <laughs> that. And then he turned into this weird sort of rent gob in the media after that, giving mm. quotes about Manchester United's failure. Although there are many players who do that paid or unpaid mm. and then the, f the final of the the quartet of united players you look at is ashley young who's i mean he he stayed for a very long time at united and uh, he i guess it was successful in in so far as he won plenty of stuff and then or did he win plenty of stuff yeah i guess he was um, early uh, yeah yeah early and then became a sort of jobbing fullback after that and yeah. became a symbol of United not being able to actually purchase a decent player at right back or left back. <laughs> but uh, interesting career, very lengthy career, and still still playing, still at Villa yeah. now. Well, he's, again, I was more interested in his story at Watford because yep. in Watford's history, there are, there's uh, the other Watford player in there is Aurelio Gomez. He has a, a, a story of like sort of coming in at Tottenham bombing out and then rebuilding a reputation. Yes. Young is quite similar in a sense that he was released from the Watford Academy for being too small. And it's a story of how that was a part of English football for quite some time, still is to a certain degree, managed to work his way back in at Watford through sheer persistence, went to Villa at a time where they were challenging to try and break into the, the big four. And it was a, a, a sort of thankless task, really, what Martin O'Neill's Aston Villa side had at the time, given the fact that Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal and Chelsea were two of those, well, I say three of those four were almost Champions League semi-finalists every year. And then when he goes into Manchester United, he arrives at a time where they basically break Arsenal in terms of the 8-2. And mm. then he, the longer he stays at the club, he becomes a sort of de facto representation of how far the club has fallen in that he's the same player, but his role in the side gets more and more important to the point he's captain. And he's one of the few players when you look around after about three years, it's like, oh, he knows what it's like to win titles because he was there under Fergie and there's no one else that, that, that's there. And it's not, a ref, it's not a reflection of who he is as a person, who he is as a footballer, because then he goes to Italy and becomes, I think, the first player to win the Premier League and Serie A. It was just a a, a, shot, a, a, a snapshot in time as to what was going on at Old Trafford. Yes, not the cause of United's problems, but felt like he was part of it sometimes, yeah. at least towards the end. Yeah. Anyway, a fascinating book and nice concept to, to tell the story. It's, it was out this summer, I think. Yes, it's, it's been hard, out for a couple of weeks back. now. You can get it. Yes, Hardback and ebook. All righty. Pitch Publishing, who've kind of cornered the market in sports uh, stuff, haven't they? Um, <laughs> yes. Used to, be, used to be very niche and now do a lot. I, mm. I think co-host of this podcast, Wayne Barton, has published some on Pitch as well. I might be totally wrong about it. He's done so many books. Now I forget where they're all at. Anyway, great, great book, Stuart. Fascinating uh, concept and good to talk to you about it. Anyway, I thought we'd close with the, the reveal. You said you'd tell us who you're a fan of. Is it Birmingham or Villa? Oh, that's a good question because it's neither of those. Uh, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it a little bit more mystic because you're going to have something to say. Rumour has it you played them this week and rumour has it you won. Oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah, see, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. If I'd known that, actually, we've yeah, had Liverpool yeah. fans on here before. <laughs> this is why I found it really interesting in the first instance to write about Wayne Rooney because from my perspective, he's the devil's a bit The harsh. devil. But... 
like it was so fascinating to go back and watch and i think i've been sort of had some sort of closure and catharsis over what's happened with us over the last few years but i think he's such an underrated footballer and it's it's wow it's insane watching it back now but yeah like to for the uninitiated i am a liverpool fan and yeah, it's still fascinating to go back and look at the story of Manchester United over the last 30 years and also the story of us and, and, and so much of everything else. One thing I've realised in the process of writing this book is that every fan base exists within its bubble and every bubble thinks it's better than every other bubble. Yeah, oh, of course. Well, congratulations on your one Premier League title. It was a long time coming and maybe a long time until the next one comes too. Stuart, thank you very much. A pleasure to have you on the pod. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All righty. Thanks, everyone. Backers, stay tuned. We're going to chat about the weekend's Premier League.